The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Okay, let's move on to something completely different. Uh, Traditional open fireplaces could become a thing of the past, or else a luxury item. That's under little-known building regulations. No, it's not April the 1st. The rules introduced in 2014 mean all new builds must meet a far, far higher level of echo efficiency, and installing an open fireplace in your home will make this more difficult and expensive. To discuss this, we're joined by the former CEO of the Royal Institute of Irish Architects, John Grabby, and the CEO of online tradesman, Ted Laverty. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome to the programme. I'll start with you, John. Um, Open fireplaces, I mean, they are pretty much as common in Irish homes, uh, maybe not in the past, but certainly, say, as in the the 1960s, when they kind of had sort of faded out. They are, people do like having them there, don't they? Everybody likes an open fire, and it's not the intention to get rid of open fires or to make them a luxury. But in terms of better energy efficiency, you houses now have to reach certain standards. And the example I would give, suppose, for example, you want to have an enormous window, single-glazed, you have to have compensating measures. Um, but there's no intention of getting rid of uh, the fire. I think we've changed in that I was thinking of, say, the average working couple. They come home in the evening, look after the kids, get the dinner, now, they're expecting heat. They're not going to rake out the grate. They're not going to get, bring the fuel in. Most of us now only light a fire on special occasions, Christmas and so on. Um, we rely on other systems for heating. But also in this country, we are uniquely dependent on uh, importing fossil fuels. And we do need to become as energy efficient as we can. But there is no intention of phasing out the open fire. Okay, just so... but, bear but one thing in, bear, Just bear one thing in mind. 75% of the heat from a fire goes up the chimney. Mm. So you put four briquettes on your fire. One of them is heating you, and three of them are heating, the, heating up the chimney. Okay, just to explain, that, um, that that is a very fair point, just to explain, what are these new regulations? Because uh, you're, you're right to say that it's not like the open fire will be banned, but um, there are restrictions, or you certainly will have to pay for it. Well, you, you, it, there is a, generally, there is a move to improve insulation standards for houses across the board. And uh, th- there are costs involved there. But in the, in, the, in the medium and long run, you're saving money by insulating your house better. Better, in- better insulation, external insulation, better windows, better draft stripping. It's all part of a, it's all part of a picture. You're familiar, you know the building energy rating systems. Mm. That's not just one element. It's the total package. And the, the total package has to meet certain standards in, in all our interests. Okay, so the regulations specifically, what do they say? Just be- before I bring in Ted. Ted would be better than me on this, but they do require higher standards of energy efficiency generally. That's, that's the basic. But not dramatically so. They've been increasing over quite a number of years. It's not, it's not something new that the standards have been raised slightly. Okay. Uh, Ted Laverty. It's uh, Ted Laverty. Even. It, it sounds kind of, sort of logical and, and plausible what's being proposed. Hello, Ted. Ted, are you there? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Hi, Ted. Uh, yeah, you, hi, how's it going? You're saying it's reasonable. Look, what's next? Windows that you can't open. You know, it's. Uh, look, I mean, to be fair, what, why is it? Why is this in the news? It's, it's in the news because I think Dermot Bannon mentioned it on a certain radio show, and then uh, Michael Healy Ray brought it up as something that was preposterous and that was an insult to rural Ireland and all these things. And I think it's important for certain people to be in the news at the moment. Uh, this was brought in in 2014 as part of the um, the building regs. 
lots of issues with the building regs in general, but really you can't argue against this one. I mean, you know, when you look at um, everything that John said in terms of uh, heat loss in the house, um, you know, and even when the fire isn't on, you've effectively got a big hole in your roof. So, you know, um, I think phasing it out uh, is, is maybe not such a <laughs> bad thing in a lot of ways. Um, having said that, if you do have one in your house, you know, you can stick a chimney balloon up the actual chimney flue and you'll stop a lot of the heat escaping. Um, I think what they're trying to do with this... Oh, hold, is sorry, just hold, hold on a second. <laughs> the chimney balloon, uh, that's if you're not using the fire, though, is it? If you're not using it, oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. 100%. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate putting it up there if you're using the fire. You're, you're going to get a big pop and probably worse. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I guess... It's it's a bit of a non-story in a lot of ways. I well, think, no, hold on, it's not a non-story because, uh, and uh, you know, it, it, I was saying it's kind of sensible and plausible. But uh, first of all, the, what what exactly do the regulations say? Well, the regulations, okay, as they're they're stated, there's uh, per square meter, there's got to be a certain energy efficiency rating uh, for all new homes that are built uh, uh, for the new. Uh, home regulator, building regulations, they're there for mass-produced houses, right? So they don't actually apply in the same way to extensions or to one-off home builds. Yeah. So, you know, so if somebody... Which is, is important because it's something we have done really, really, really badly in the past. We haven't cared about energy efficiency in, in building new homes. And we know that the successive governments put the building industry before the environment when it came to that. We have actually, we, we know that for a fact. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, I, when you look now at the very few housing developments that actually are out there, you'll actually see in big writing what the energy efficient rating is. Whether it's a, uh, I think the minimum that it can be at the moment is a B1, um, but you'll see all the new developments that are up there. They're all around A3 or A2, which which is great. You know, I mean, that's you know that's what people want. Their fuel bills are going to be drastically reduced. And when you actually look at any of the show homes now, you will see that the vast majority of them don't have a fireplace. And that's for that very reason, in terms that they are very inefficient. I can remember, Shane, back in around 2005, when uh, homes were going up, um, duplexes in particular, and I know them in South Dublin, and they actually had a studded fireplace, okay? They were flueless. They didn't actually have a chimney, but they had the effect of a chimney breast. They had a gas fire in the middle of it, and guess what? It didn't go anywhere. There was a catalytic converter that actually converted the emissions back into the room. Like, that was crazy, you know? And the reality is, is that... I think as John alluded to, people don't put on their fires anymore. They've got central heating systems, they've got radiators. You know. yeah, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I have to say, I'm, I live in a house where we put on the fire most nights. Now, we have invested in one of these stoves and look, they're not cheap, but I have to say, I think it's the best investment we ever made. I, 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 like, we light the fire and we literally, even on the coldest winter night, it heats the entire downstairs of the house. We don't... And, and I think that's fair enough, but that's different than an open fireplace. If you're saying it's a stove and it's sealed, you know, that, that's quite different than an open fireplace where you're, 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 you're um, burning fuel mm. into... You know, it's, it's quite different. They're a lot more efficient. I think you, you lose something like 20% of the heat and those, yeah, whereas yeah. in an open fireplace you're losing 70% of it. And it's a sealed uh, chimney flue, so you're not losing heat from the room back up out into the into the ether. Yeah. Um, but there are still, I mean, the argument I would make is, I, I'm not saying it's people are right or people are wrong, but there are still a lot of people. I mean, you, you walk down my, my road on a winter's night, you see a lot of smoke coming out of chimneys still. No, oh, absolutely. And, you know, it is a traditional thing, but, you know, lots of traditions have to change. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is that they're doing this for the right reasons in terms of you know, trying to improve energy efficiencies. And you know, if you're saying to a consumer, 
that you know you can buy a house with an open fireplace and it's, you're going to spend more on your energy bills versus actually having something that's highly efficient and your bills are going to be lower. You know which one you're going to choose every time. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, we'll leave it there. Um, uh, my thanks to the CEO of Online Tradesman, Ted Laverty, and to the former CEO of the Royal Institute of Irish Architects, uh, John Grabby. Uh, John says, uh, John, a listener, by the way, says, I agree with the energy savings from open fire. However, many houses over the winter and floods had no electricity for a while, allow fire uh, to heat at least one room on a power cutter. Um, so common sense, don't get rid of the fireplace. I think most homes still have a f- at least uh, one fireplace. I have to say, the stove is absolutely fantastic. Not cheap, but well worth the money. We absolutely love it. Okay, back in a moment on The Right Hook. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Okay, welcome back to the Right Hook. Shane Coleman standing in for George today. Now in Ireland, a staggering 1.65 million people suffer from chronic pain. Over half this figure find it difficult to describe the pain they're experiencing. Of course, this can make the diagnosis of chronic pain even trickier for the nation's doctors. Now, a new initiative called My Pain Feels Like is hoping to change all this by encouraging sufferers to speak about their pain in order to improve communication between patients and doctors. Now, to discuss this, we're joined in studio by Dr. Paul Murphy, pain consultant in St. Vincent's Hospital, and also by News Talk Breakfast, uh, Ivan Yates, who himself, of course, is a chronic uh, sufferer of back pain. Uh, not that he's silent about it in any way, I should say, but uh, you're both very welcome uh, to the programme. I thought you were going to introduce me as the original pain in the ass. I, I, I did consider that but I, I thought given there's 1.65 million people suffering from chronic pain I really shouldn't it shouldn't make light of it um, Paul I, I have to say I'm, I'm staggered by that I mean that's nearly that's nearly half the population basically Absolutely it's a, it's a massive figure and, and depending which figures you read um, depending on there's European studies which will say anywhere between 13 and 30% of the population of chronic pain so it dwarfs a whole range of other medical conditions um, for example like cardiac disease asthma epilepsy diabetes other chronic illnesses um, so it's a major healthcare issue for Ireland. Um, and cr- by chronic pain, I mean mm. I'm sitting here talking to you now, and I've I've a slight sore back. Sore back. You know, I probably wouldn't notice it ninety percent of the time. But as I'm talking to you, I'm ca- that's not chronic pain. I, I take it. Well, well, chronic pain by definition is pain that's present for more than three months. Okay. So, um, but there have been studies showing that this can last for up to twenty years. The median time that people have chronic pain for is actually seven years. And, and it's quite different to the normal acute pain that we all get because when we normally get acute pain, if you're, you're playing a, a match and you sprain your ankle, that's good pain. It lets us know there's something war- so there's something going Stop on. Running it's a warning whatever, sign. Yeah. yeah, and it lets us protect ourselves. Whereas with chronic pain, there's absolutely no useful function. It's not doing any good whatsoever. Um, and it can be quite debilitating for people to try and live with. It's also immensely frustrating if you can't diagnose what the problem is. And I mean, I presume people sort of feel, you know, people think I'm kind of making this up or mm. I'm exaggerating. It's a huge problem. I mean, one of the things we'd often see is that the correlation between somebody's scans, the x-rays, MRIs, etc., and somebody's symptoms is actually pretty negligible most of the time. So we'll have people who have absolutely dreadful looking scans and no pain whatsoever. Right. And people who have dreadful pain and, and pretty normal looking scans. And, and people will come in really scratching themselves, their heads and scratching, you know, wondering what's going on? Why have I got this pain? All my tests are completely normal. And it's one of the few areas where people are actually quite disappointed to get a normal investigation. Um, and, you know, what would reassure people, I think this is not in your head. You develop this chronic illness. So pain is not a sign of anything. Mm. Pain is actually the disease. So, I mean, it, can you always ultimately diagnose it? Or in some cases, 
does it literally go without any real explanation as to why this pain is there? Well, often, and many times we will find a cause that something has happened in the past. For example, somebody's had spinal surgery and after surgery the, the pain is worse and certainly no better than it was. Or somebody may have ha- has diabetes and they've got now burning pain in their feet. Or somebody's had shingles um, a couple of years previously and they still have burning pain where the shingles was. But very often we find absolutely no cause whatsoever. And in that, in that instance, what we're saying is it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So we've ruled out all the other potential causes, but the person still has pain. And the, and the important point is to say to the person, look, we actually believe you. We know that you're not making this up. It's not in your head. You're experiencing pain. And we now accept that chronic pain is a disease in its own right. OK. Uh, Ivan Yates, I mean, you have suffered for... How, how long have you suffered from with your bad back? Uh, basically, I woke up one day in early 2003 and I could not move. I really could not move. And sorry, no lo- problems before Oh, then? no, yes, no, I had. I, right. I, I was doing these long journeys to Sligo and Ballina and Clonakilty opening betting shops. And I would get, as you said, this ache in the bottom of your uh, back uh, and I ignored it. And that's one of the reasons I got involved in this uh, website is that it actually says the critical thing is to go to your doctor immediately. It gives you a questionnaire to fill out and it actually ask you to describe your pain, whether it's like an electric shock, a burning pain. Mine is like a stabbing, throbbing pain. Imagine now your worst type of migraine headache in the middle of your back, right, not on the skin, right in the deep in the back. And I get it just from sitting. If I don't sit, if I lie on the floor, I stand up, I walk, I have no pain. I wake up with no pain. But the minute like you, I'm sitting in a chair, after 30 minutes, I'm in acute pain. It goes down my leg and my whole foot goes into pins and needles so um, I let it go too far I then had surgery I, I, said, I remember oh, that yeah. Yeah, you, know, you were out for I, exactly. I think I filled in for you yeah, exactly so you it, was, it was in June 2011 I had surgery and unfortunately they put two rods on my back to reconstruct it and it, it, it was one of those cases 50-50 it didn't bring about any improvement so I just have to avoid sitting in a chair that means broadcasting I stand up or I don't have a desk here in New York I lie on the floor and, and I I think it is important for people, A, to manage their pain. In other words, I just get out. My, it's my body's way of saying, for God's sake, I even get out of the chair. You just, you know, forget your dignity and, and just manage your pain. And I have both painkillers, which are quite strong, and anti-inflammatory tablets, which I take. But there's a limit how many you can take every four hours. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Paul, that's a good point Ivan makes about, mm. I mean, there is only so many painkiller tablets you can take. There are, and medication often isn't the only solution. I mean, there are often a range of different solutions. Um, one of the things Ivan manages is managing your pain, and, and that's a key component of it, because this is often a situation where people need to learn to live with a certain amount of pain. Um, and, and we're not designed to have ongoing pain permanently. It is supposed to be something that we can escape from, mm. you know, fix whatever the problem is and the pain goes. And a chronic pain, that doesn't happen. So it can be actually quite detrimental um, from a psychological perspective as well. So people can become depressed. A lot of people won't be able to work. Well, have major adverse incomes, you know, impacts for them and their families. Um, so learning to live with the pain can be part of the process. Um, but in addition to medication or other treatments, they're also available as well and may also be beneficial. So the things that you wouldn't, like everyday life, even said work situation, I just take a simple thing like go to the cinema. So I go on a slogan. St- After 30 minutes, I lie on the floor. So it would be dark and people would be going to the toilet and they think, oh, someone's collapsed and died who's on the floor. Who's this lunatic lying uh, exactly. on the floor? And then 
going to, like, say you went to the Olympia Theatre or something like that I actually go to the back and stand up and then the usher you know would say sorry did you want to go to the toilet or why are you standing there and and could you explain could you say listen I just have this chronic back people, I can't people look at you and say oh yeah pull the other one you know what I mean but uh, even going for a meal I would always go place you know where you'd have you know not regular seats but against the wall because what I do is I lean on my right elbow or left just to take the weight of my torso off my, it's L3 L4 is my problem so just my back my spine is too weak to hold up uh, the rest of my body and I've been told because I've seen all the MRIs that it's not from an accident it's just wear and tear because I think the human body isn't designed to sit in an L shape like you are it's just not it's not supposed to be that way and you know 20 years of, of bad posture bad sitting and it ended up in, in not fixable um, Psychologically how do you feel about it? I mean, does it does it get you down? Does it wear you down? Are you no, fed th- up with it? Sometimes or? it's disrespectful. Say I'm at an important meeting where you're expected to sit in a chair. Yeah. And you say, I'm just so sorry about that. It, it can be disrespectful and people don't understand. It. So that is the embarrassment of it a little bit. But but you've obviously had to do that. You said, listen, guys, yeah. I, I just have to people, fall back. I have to stand up. And people get used to it. People yeah. get used to it. And because they know. Exactly. Well, but if you're chairing a conference or something like that, it just is like you're between speakers, you're lying at the back of the hall on <laughs> On the floor and people, geez, what's wrong with them? Has he had one to drink or something? You know what I mean? But so it's, it's the but it, it, to be honest, all of that pales into insignificance in comparison to the actual just misery of the pain. But if I, the great thing, like when I speak to people with back problems, when they lie flat, they get they get their back problems. You just imagine opposite. waking up. Yeah. If I if I lie down for an hour, I, within an hour I'll have got relief. Because that was the last question I was going to ask you about your pain. Like if you were sitting in a studio or sitting in a car and you have that pain, does it literally take an hour for the pain to go? After well, sometimes you? it doesn't go. But like if it goes too far, like for example, in a car journey, anything beyond 20 minutes, I don't drive. So I take a railway where I could stand up in a train or just dear to drive me around. I have two pillows or cushions. You lie and I just back. lie in the side. Yeah. In your chauffeur driven car. Something like that. It's an obfusion. <laughs> <laughs> um. Paul, I suppose like there'll be people. Listen, I mean, obviously, if there's almost whatever thirty percent of the population who suffer from this, who'll be saying, "That's me. That's what I have." What's What's the message we want to get across to them tonight? I think, I think the first, the most important thing is to go and, and seek uh, advice from the general practitioner, uh, because the GPs are obviously extremely good at assessing this. Um, and with the launch of this website, which is a really good tool, it'll allow people before they go to their GP evaluate: Have they got chronic pain? What subtype of chronic pain have they got? And also it's a very useful tool as well for, for healthcare professionals to look at and be able to evaluate people appropriately. Um, and the vast majority of GPs will be able to give advice, you know, refer people on to physiotherapists, uh, commence medication if necessary, or, or if, if really necessary, uh, refer on to, to more uh, advanced centres like, like we have in hospital. And do you see people every day in your job that are just, whose lives are a misery for no other reason than the pain they are enduring. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we see just ongoing, continuous, permanent pain with huge volumes of people. Um, can you make a difference to that? We can make a difference for a huge number of them. Now, for some people, it may be simply saying, we can't do a huge amount to cure your pain, but we can certainly help you live better with it. But for substantial numbers of people, we can get pain, massive pain reduction, where people can actually get back to leading normal lives, where they can drive, work, do all the things they want to do and live their lives as normal. Um, and, and often it's incredibly satisfying to get those results. 
Uh, Ivan, uh, last word to you. Uh, the, the importance of a, a campaign such as My Pain Feels, feels Like. Feels like uh, First of all, it gives you a questionnaire so that uh, if, if to describe the pain and to articulate the pain because uh, we met a, a, an MS sufferer this morning and her pain is electric shock in her face. There's a trapped nerve in her skull. Like Everyone's pain is different. So it gives a, a menu of options to describe your pain. So when you go to your doctor say, oh, that means it's a nerve or or that means it's a muscle or a strain or a, a spine problem. And I think, therefore, I think the website will help a lot of people because they'll be able to resonate with the options and the questionnaire. And if you had a regret, it is that you didn't tackle your Absolutely. issue earlier? I should, have, I should have actually taken a lot more advice and uh, uh, just not, you know, just not try and tough it out, not just say mind over matter because you can do yourself permanent damage. Okay, good stuff. My thanks to Dr. Paul Murphy, a pain consultant in St. Vincent's Hospital and also, of course, News Talk Breakfast, uh, Ivan Yates. Um, the website, mypainfeelslike.ie. All on word. Okay, thanks a lot for coming in to us, lads. Back in a moment. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie. Now, on this day 100 years ago, the very first radio broadcast was sent in Ireland in about, what, seven or eight minutes' time, I think, or eight or nine minutes' time. It was a Morse code uh, broadcast sent by some of the rebels during the 1916 Rising, uh, aimed to spread the word of Ireland's rebellion to foreign news media. The Sound of 16 initiative celebrates this historic first broadcast with an 80-second broadcast that's going to feature the original message, a translation and a flavour of some of the sounds from that day. We're going to be playing that at exactly half past five, which is the time, apparently, uh, that this broadcast was sent out, or just just after that. Um, Before we hear that broadcast, we're going to chat to Rory Hamilton, creative director with boysandgirls.ie, who are behind the Sound of 16 uh, initiative. Rory, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you for having me in. Um, It's extraordinary that this first radio broadcast took place during the 1916 rebellion. I, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, me either, to be honest. We were, we, were, we were working on a very different campaign when we came across this, this really lovely fact that, the, that Ireland's first radio broadcast 100 years ago today, in, in a few minutes, um, was such an important one. You know, we would have assumed that, you know, first off, you'd send out a test broadcast or something. But, but our, our Ireland's first radio broadcast was our Declaration of Independence. Yeah, no dry run here. Let's, no let's cut run. to the chase. If we're, we're going to if we're going to put something out in radio, let's put something important. <laughs> Make out it there. something very important. Yeah. OK, tell us what was said during the transmission. So during the transmission, it was a, you know, a very simple message transmitted by, by, by Morse code. And what the message actually read, Irish Republic declared in Dublin today, Irish troops have captured the city and are in full possession. Enemy cannot move in city, the whole country rising. And I think during the time of, of, of the battle, it was rather an optimistic message. I'm not sure they were in full possession of the city yeah, at the but, time, um, but they were desperate to get that message A little bit of poetic license, to the I world. suppose, exactly. from, from the rebellion of poets. Um, what kind of technology would have been needed at the time? I mean, or how advanced was the technology at the time to do this? Well, I think to a certain extent they were lucky because uh, Joseph Mary Plunkett had 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 been a wireless expert who recognises the the power of radio, and from their perspective they were just desperate to get that message out past any of the British control, hopefully so that it'd be picked up by some of the American papers so that the world would hear the news. So really, 
We said it wasn't a dry run. This was just broadcast as a hit and hope, if you like, rather than a direct message sent to any any ship in particular, as people would have done at the time. This was just broadcast as far as they could get. A kind of a message in a bottle, basically, via radio. Kind of a message in a bottle from the Wireless School of Telegraphy, which was on Sackville Street, which had been out of commission since the First World War. So they went in and they uh, got the equipment up and running. And so they, this was a sort of a college that was decommissioned during yeah, the war for obvious reasons, yeah, basically, yeah, for yeah. censorship reasons. Yeah, for very obvious censorship reasons. And they erected the giant aerial on the roof to try and get this message out under, as it turned out, heavy sniper fire from, from British soldiers trying to quell the rebellion or stop this message getting out and managed to get this precious 80 seconds across which ultimately played on a loop for I believe up to 24 hours before they were forced to retreat and turn the message down but ultimately they were successful the message got out I was going to say who, who got the message well th- this is this is where the, the, the history if you like is less exact we know that it was picked up by a number of ships in the Atlantic we, we believe that it was picked up by a vessel uh, fishing off the coast of Japan we also know that it was picked up by uh, rather less luckily like I'm struggling to get my head around that like I mean I suppose was it short wave I suppose I mean that's a hell of a distance it is yeah yeah I'm I'm unfortunately no expert in technology but, but I mean Unfortunately, from their perspective, it was also picked up by a British naval vessel that was docked in Dunleary, who promptly sent a ship up to try and bomb okay, the building. They knew, they knew what they were at then. They, yeah, they knew what they were at. Also, fascinatingly, it was also picked up by a man in the Isle of Man who, who, who um, uh, sent the message on to the authorities who promptly arrested him for possession of equipment that he wasn't allowed to have under British rule. Oh, there's thanks for you. Yeah. Extraordinary. Now, tell us about this um, Sound of 16 initiative to obviously to celebrate this centenary. Yeah, so we felt that it would be a really interesting idea to try and celebrate the birth of radio. We really love this idea that radio is so important to Irish people, you know, greater listenership than any other country, etc., etc., per head of population, that we felt that we could represent Ireland as a nation born on the airwaves because our very first radio broadcast was a declaration of independence. So what we did was took the initial 80 seconds and in the same way that the rebels themselves had taken over the airwaves and tried to broadcast this, we're trying to take over every radio station at exactly the same time or all 37 radio stations that are members of either the RTE or the independent broadcasters of Ireland and and to transmit this message and rather than just being the initial Morse code message we've got Ian Lloyd Anderson the great actor in to try and to try and bring to life that message and a translation of it and we've even used some of the rifles of the day and sounds of that battle to bring to life the Morse code that are going to intersperse the Morse code Great so we're not just getting the not just the it, dry run which would just sound like yeah. the start of uh, Inspector Morse or something basically <laughs> <A> little, <yeah. laughs> yes, uh, We are going to get a sort of a, a dramatic reenaction yeah. of uh, yeah. Uh, fantastic stuff. Um, it is quite extraordinary when you think about it. We're we're uh, we're a couple of minutes away from that uh, being played. I, I I just still think it is incredible that you had this rebellion going on, history being made, yeah. but also, I mean, this would be a, a news story on its own. The first radio uh, broadcast in this country. Absolutely, and 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 radio in these in these times of troubles is so important. I I, I noticed your security on the way in today was relatively robust in letting me in, in up the lift. You can tell in any countries where there is an uprising or a rebellion, it's the news outlets and radio that they go yeah. to first because if you get that message out across the world, that kind of authority was exactly what they were looking at to be yeah, recognised. I'm, I'm even just thinking when when I was a kid, you uh, you always knew or certainly the world news organisations knew that a Soviet leader had died for example because they would play classical music on the radio stations for 12 hours in a row and they'd know oh whatever it is 
uh, Andropov has died or Chernenko has died or whatever. Absolutely. And in terms of the, the, the insurgency or uprising in Egypt, first thing, you know, Twitter was massive in terms of getting that message across. We know in terms of, of, of 1916, radio played such a huge role in getting that, that message out to the world, if mm. you like, though it was only heard by a number of people. That message got to the world, which was exactly what the British troops at the time would have wanted to stop. Mm. And I suppose, as you say, sort of like social media is filling that role today. We've seen that in in certain revolutions in certain parts of the world already, the importance of just that ability to communicate. Absolutely. But I mean, you know, I'm delighted to say that radio certainly hasn't lost its place with 83% of adults listening to the radio daily. You know, one of the things we wanted this to demonstrate, there are so many... You know, the 1916 commemorations are so important in terms of remembering what happened in Ireland. But it, it is a lovely centenary to celebrate that during that time was the birth of Irish radio. Yeah, no, it is extraordinary. I was at the um, the, the Lacra celebration in, in Croke Park yesterday and I, I just thought it was fantastic. I really did. And you know, whether or not you agree with 1916 and what happened, I couldn't help yesterday but be very moved by it. And I was sort of thinking as I was watching it that literally 100 years ago, you know, as it, just to that very moment, there were, you know, people, you know, where it was in the GPO or in Boland's Mill or whatever, fighting for, that would change this country forever. And it is quite uh, extraordinary. There were, I mean, there, were, there, there are so many brilliant little stories that have been intertwined with this. So many sad stories, heroic stories, tragic stories. But we found in, in, in looking through the archives and finding everything that's just... You know, this particular story of the birth of Irish radio was one that we hadn't heard among all of the great stories that have come out from 1916, something that hadn't necessarily been celebrated. And we're in such a unique position that our first radio broadcast was such an important one that went out to the masses that it feels like something that's very much worth celebrating today. OK, Rory Hamilton, Creative Director with boysandgirls.ie. Thanks indeed for joining us on the programme. Look, we get so wrapped up in our own lives all the time. We're just pausing for, what is it, 80 seconds Going back to this very moment a hundred years ago. And this is what you would have heard if you had a, access to a ham radio back then. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Okay, welcome back to the Right Hook. Shane Coleman standing in for George today. Now, come nine o'clock tonight, many of you will be looking forward to this sound. Yep, Game of Thrones makes its long-awaited return as Season 6 premieres on Sky Atlantic tonight, where, among other things, we will learn the fate of Jon Snow. No, not that Jon Snow, the other Jon Snow. Uh, But can the world's current favourite TV drama really be considered up there with The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, The Wire, The Bridge... The Killing, all those other ones. To look ahead at what's in store for Season 6 and to look at the cultural phenomenon that is Game of Thrones, we're joined on the line now by uh, Sunday Independent journalist, TV columnist, uh, Pat Fitzpatrick. Hi, Pat. Hi, Shane. How's it going? I'm good, I'm good. Listen, I better declare my interest, or lack thereof, at the start. Uh, just for a variety of reasons, I have never seen Game of Thrones. Um, now, it is something I will turn my mind to at some point, but I should say that at the outset. So I'm I'm curious about it, though, and I'm, what I'm particularly curious about is how a drama which features dragons has become so popular and so critically acclaimed? The, the key really was when they brought in the dragons, because I remember reading about it before I started watching it. 
and I'd heard there were dragons in it and you know because everybody was watching it I started to watch it they didn't put the dragons in at the start by the time the dragons come in it actually makes total sense that there should be dragons in it in fact you'd <laughs> wonder why there aren't dragons in everything you know and that's part of the kind of allure of it that you do get drawn for instance I watched the last episode of season 5 last night just so that you know because there's a lot there's a lot of threads going on you kind of want to catch up I found myself watching it, you know, I wasn't that gone on it. I was thinking, it actually takes time to get into Game of Thrones. Um, there's a certain type of language, there's a certain kind of pomposity about it. It's not actually that funny. You know, there's some of the shows you listed off there, for instance, The Sopranos um, and Breaking Bad, for instance, which had laugh-out-loud moments. They're not exactly kind of to a penny in, in the Game of Thrones. What Game of Thrones does have, it's got gripping characters, definitely. It's got just a fantastic story that will bring you back to the kind of... We watch even reading to our kids now, they're kind of they're starting to get into the fairy tales now. And it's the kind of stories we've been, you know, we've been told since we were growing up, um, since we can remember stories. And, and then they just add in tons of news. To be honest. I was going to ask you... Just one in th- case that doesn't work. Yeah, one thing it does have lots of, by all accounts, is um, sex and nudity. I mean, how explicit is it? I mean, I'm not asking you to spell it out. Well, it's kind of soft. I know, of course, you've never watched soft porn, but I've lots to watch. And it, it's soft porn. You know, it's, it's, it's not full frontal, really. But it, it, there is, I mean, for instance, there's, there's a famous walk of shame that one of the main characters, Cersei Lannister, was forced to do in the last episode of the last series, which was full frontal. Now, she used a body double, but, you know, it is. So there's full frontal, it's, it's, and I'm not sure it's full frontal for men, but it's, it's, it's pretty much out there. You know, it's, it's, and it's, is, it, is it pretty gratuitous, the, the sex in it? You know, I think they've toned it down. As far as I could, I mean, it was all oiled bodies and kind of sculpted bodies, certainly in the first and second season. And really, you knew you were never more than five minutes away from just, you know, scenes <laughs> would start. I, they'd introduce characters having sex. You know, the first yeah. time you'd see them would be having sex with, with an oiled I mean, was it, I'm thinking of that ludicrous pilot, you know what, that was on for, was it Spartacus, that Spartacus, series? Yeah, no, no, it's, it's not like that. that. That's kind of, that looks like a kind of a toy show. That looks like a kind of an amateur show made in a back lot in Los Angeles compared to this. What matters in Game of Thrones is the amount of money they spend. Mm. I mean, they're now up to something like 10 million an episode now and with, with over 10. You know, they have 100 million a series that they spend on this. Wow, so that's a lot of money, storytelling. It? It's a lot of money, you know. It's, it's, it doesn't compare. Now, Rome, for instance, which HBO, Rome is spending that as well. It's not absolutely out there. But HBO is just getting a much bigger return on this. Um, the other thing they have, though, and I think, and it also lures us, they have eye candy locations. Northern Ireland amongst them, actually. Um, the Irish coast, up around Down, and the famous, there's a famous road, for instance, that they use. So, so you, you could be watching kind of 10 minutes of the most grueling winter scene filmed up in Iceland, and then suddenly they bring it to Dubrovnik, and you're just, you breathe, and it looks great, and the sex looks that bit better, you know, because it's a bit warmer and all that, and they're, <laughs> they're more oiled. But no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm underselling it, really. It's, it's not about the sex, really. It's not. It's a gripping story. And to be honest, there is, I mean, the key to it, Winter is Coming is, is, is the byline for it, really. And the key to it is the notion that there's this relentless army of the dead about to invade and kill everyone. And all the kind of machinations of the kingdom of seven families trying to take over the kingdom matter for nothing because these people are coming. And there is, it does, I think, and it's something the Sopranos did as well. It taps into the notion that, of anxiety and that bad times are coming. And even with things like the growth and the spread of terrorism across Europe, mm. it's, you know, it's that writ large that notion that these people will not go away, that they're not defeatable. And so it ties into that. But really, then, if you don't want, like, at that level, there are boobies as well, you know. So <laughs> it's got something. I'd recommend it, Shane, honestly. I, uh, it's funny, I was, I was chatting to, um, to Chris Donoghue about it, who presents, of course, News Talk Breakfast here. And he was saying, I was saying, oh, you know, dragons, like, you know, 
I couldn't be I, I couldn't really be bothered he said no 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 he said forget the dragons he says this is a political drama would you go yeah. along with that yeah I mean you, you, you'd like it because it is about machinations it is about and a lot of the twists are political twists where people who thought they had friends and made political allegiances get let down and now Whereas in the doll, that might mean a lost vote in the doll. It usually means a sword in the neck in, in Game of Thrones, right? I mean, the body count, I just was looking at a graph there earlier on, actually, of the body count across the seasons. And it's up now, like, around 250 for season five. So but I think they've phased out the sex a bit and they've phased in the killing. And that's how issues get resolved. But, you know, that it has that kind of sense of reality. It, it's got a kind of a medieval feel. You, know, you look at it in some ways, it's, it's quite modern. And bits of it look medieval and bits of it look kind of like Christian times or the start early Christian times. But more than anything, it feels like kind of a medieval blood feud. There's a bit of the Tudors about it, actually. Um, but just better politics and, you know, a more subtle interweaving of the stories. And the main thing as well, they've got the best villains. You know, the, There's one fa- family, we're all supposed to hate them, the Lannisters. But you know, like the way the devil has the best parties, the Lannisters mm. are the best characters. Um, and there's a, there's a, the goodies are the family called the Starks, but they're all boring, you know. So luckily they're getting killed out in each episode. I mean, uh, that Jon Snow reference is, is actually one of the, the Stark family. And, I, I, you know, they, HBO made a really big deal about whether he's dead or not. I'm not sure people care that much, actually. I think people who care much more, for instance, of Tyrion Lannister, the kind of the pivot of the thing, if he actually died, if there's the main, and he's not actually a villain, but, you know, if, if one of the guys from the main villain family died, I think then people would care. But I tell you, to answer your question when you started out, was, does it match up to all these things? Yes, it does. I, I, and I'm only speaking for myself here that... As we go into season six, The Sopranos now is a lot more episodes, but at six seasons, it's still fresh. It's still compelling. And it, you've got the sense that it's going someplace. This notion of the relentless army about to attack means that there's a reckoning coming down. And apparently there's a phenomenal battle scene in this series that is going to cost the, you know, uh, half the budget of every feature film you've ever seen. They're going to blow on this battle scene. So it's uh it you know it, it gets better and better I, I i would if we get bad weather in ireland you know we do sometimes mm-hmm. sit down with the five seasons some weekend and get stuck in okay really. um lots of texts uh, coming through on this already pat um james says nothing has ever come close to the excellent of sopranos shane another listener says please shane start reading the game of thrones books before watching the tv show the political intrigue and double dealing will have you enthralled do do the does the tv show pretty closely mirror the, well, the, the books? i haven't read the books so apparently it has up to now not necessarily in sequence but all the things that do happen did happen up to now but they they've basically used up all the books now, I think they've got the author, George R. R. Martin, busy hacking out a new one. But this is the first time, I think, that they've actually gone into new material. They've had to generate new storylines themselves. I, I, I wouldn't get it as the books. I'm not that interested. I think it's, it's probably that little bit more nerdy in the books. Um, it might be one more for the super fans, right? Because I think it's a visual spectacular. Um, you know, Game of Thrones, it's, it's, it's a television show for me. It's visually spectacular in every way. And I can't imagine being that, that intrigued by the books. I mean, obviously the political intrigue would carry, but the rest of it would be missing. OK. Uh, I mean, we hear a lot these days about it being a golden era for television. And look, it, it, it definitely is. And, and I get that. But I also wonder, I, I mean... Is there a bit of a is there a bit of oppression about having to watch these series? I mean, you know, like if you if you say, "Oh, I haven't watched Sopranos," people go, "Oh, you know, you're missing out." It's like it's like yeah, you're missing oh, out on this yeah. massive life experience. Like people were talking to me about Happy Valley. You have to watch it, and I watched it, and you know what? It's grand, uh, but it's it's not life changing. It's not no. revolutionary, groundbreaking. I'm with you right? You probably like House of Cards, do you? I again, you know what? I liked it, and I you know, but. I, it, 
Really, you're not. Yeah, but see, I'm the same. I I couldn't. I like, I'm allergic to House of Cards. I tried it three times. I've had three. No, I I wasn't mad about. It. And I, do you know what? I gave up on the latest series. I just couldn't be bothered. Actually, when I started, I never got it. past series one with that. But I think that happens. To, you're dead right. Of course, that. I mean, I read somewhere actually that TV production companies are pouring more and more of their money now into drama because drama ties in really well with the social media buzz that you need to create around the series to make it a global success. Mm. So, you know, the kind of things that you wouldn't have people talking about a quiz format. You can see people doing blogs and recaps and all the kind of social media stuff that creates a buzz. And Game of Thrones is the most pirated show of all time. That, so there's more and more money going into drama. So there's no doubt that there's better drama being made. Yeah. But you're dead right that there's a kind of notion that because everybody wants to be out there. I mean, the, the best thing you can do now to a person is recommend them the show that they're missing. You know, if you really want to feel <laughs> superior to someone, you know, oh, I can't believe you're not watching that. With that, half those things, I, I actually thought Happy Valley was excellent, right? But, you know, with half those things, people would recommend And then you kind of feel bad about it. A friend of mine, what was it, um, How to Get Away with Murder, I think it's called, they were waxing lyrical about it. I thought it was like kind of a bad episode of Beverly Hills 90210 or something. <laughs> dire. And that's saying something. You know, so it, the, you're right, the matter of taste now that we are all supposed to accept that there are these icons. But that's the same with any kind of... Well, Bre- Breaking Bad was, I mean, I suggested on, on radio that I, like, and I watched all of Breaking Bad and I enjoyed it, but I, I said I didn't think it was the most extraordinary thing ever. But it was like telling people, I don't know, that, uh, oh, yeah. You know, no, no, cri- Criticising their mother or something, you know? Yeah, no, there's a cultish element about it. And it's all about belonging as well, of course, you know, to be the person. And, you know, that's why, for instance, they did a simulcast at 2 a.m. this morning. If you did want to watch it, it was on Sky Atlantic um, in, this morning at 2 a.m. And I hear certain hipster companies across Ireland and the UK were giving their staff a day off. Oh, for Jesus' sake. Because, That's no, ridiculous. but you can see why, though, because you want to be the person up tweeting about it, which I think is the most insane thing of all time, oh, rather than watching the oh, show. But there was a lot of that yeah. happening. <laughs> see, that would make me not want to watch it. But uh, Bernard Nashburn says, Shane, Homeland, please just watch him. See, I watched the first series of Homeland, and your man, the main actor, the English guy, uh, Damien Fitzpatrick, is it? Or Damien, not Damien Lewis. Damien Lewis. <laughs> Damien Lewis. <laughs> uh, I couldn't look at him. He just annoyed me so much. I, really? I didn't get Homeland, Homeland at all. Patchy. I, I thought the first. I actually. I thought the first series. And you get a lot of these patchy. Sopranos was patchy, by the way. You know, there was there was one series of the Sopranos when they started to drink the Kool Aid and they started to believe the hype. And so you you always know this when they have a lot of dream sequences that they're actually after. Kind of they're going too far and they're thinking, well, we need to be arty. Right. So Sopranos did a good bit of that as well, and we forget that. And funny that if you went back and look, and I did went back and looked at it again all all of it recently. You know, it's not as brilliant as we think it is. We've kind of bestowed this iconic status on it because it was a while ago. I can, uh, I can hear the outrage on. already coming through on the text. That oh, you dare that's what you got me on for. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, but it's, none of these things really, I've never seen a thing that can sustain it over 60 episodes that can be brilliant every episode. That's, yeah, no, that's, that's I think that, that's true. Listen, just to close, uh, season six starting, what, what can we expect? Is it kind of more of the same? Well, the big thing to expect is the reckoning is coming, that these people are arriving at the wall, the, the, the White Walkers, the Army of the Dead. So one way or the other, they've got to be sorted out. I mean, there's a ton of issues. Cersei, there's a lot of female, it's going to be a lot more about female characters. So Cersei Lannister, I mentioned that the walk of, she, she was publicly shamed. So she's going to be, and she's a ruthless character. She's on, uh, she's on the road to revenge. And I so look, you could, what you can really expect is a lot of swords going into a lot of necks. But the best thing about it is expect the unexpected because no one is ever safe in Game of Thrones when it comes to killing off characters. And, that's, and of course, because this isn't about the books anymore, we don't know who, nobody knows who's going to get killed off next. 
Okay, good stuff. Um, journalist uh, with the Sunday Independent TV columnist Pat Fitzpatrick, thanks very much indeed for joining us. The Right Hook Podcast with the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business, and new L two hundred, all with a leading five year commercial warranty. Mitsubishi Motors.